In this course together, we're going to be considering principles of how to study the Bible. The goal of this time together will be for all of us to increase our ability and our skill as interpreters of the Bible so that we can read that book for ourselves and understand it and be able to deal with it in a responsible, a mature, and a diligent way. I would love to be able to give a course in how to study the Bible in three easy lessons. But so far, I haven't been able to find those three easy lessons that will do it. This course is going to take work. We're going to try to stretch our knowledge. We're going to try to stretch our understanding and get better tools so that we will know how to handle difficult passages in the Bible. And in this first lecture together, I'd like to explore the most basic question of it all, and that is, why should we study the Bible at all? Let's do that after we open with prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you as the author of truth the one to whom each one of us is ultimately responsible for how we handle truth. And we pray that you would strengthen your church by strengthening its people in their knowledge and in their skill of understanding and obeying your truth. For we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Every year, the results are the same. The Bible continues to be the perennial national bestseller of all of the books in print. But the, the cynics, of course, respond to that by saying, yes, everybody buys a Bible. Everybody owns a Bible. But there are precious few who read it and even less who diligently study it. It's one thing, of course, to be involved in a daily devotional where we skip over a very small portion of Scripture and meditate on it. That has its real value. But that's not the same thing as studying the Scriptures to deepen our understanding of the things of God. And there are many people in the church who feel and, and at times a burden of guilt because the preachers keep telling us that we ought to be diligent students of the Scripture, we ought to know it better than we do. And I find as I talk with Christians that many of them are very sheepish about discussing this matter, but sometimes in, in the right circumstances privately they'll say, you know, I really haven't even read the whole Bible, or I'm really not very disciplined at studying the Scriptures. And many say to me, I've tried many different ways. I've followed all different kinds of programs, but I've never really been able to get into it. A recent poll by the Gallup people indicated that people still have a very high regard for the authority of Scripture. But the poll also revealed what most of us already expected uh, would be the case, and that is that there were a very small segment of the population whose actual values and ideas and thinking has been conditioned and informed by Scripture. And that's something that is measurable from time to time and from generation to generation. And for a multitude of reasons, I guess, somehow this era 
of Western civilization has not produced a burning desire among people to master the Word of God. I don't have time to explore all the reasons for that, but there are two problems that I hear again and again that I'd like to comment on briefly. The first one is also somewhat cynical. People will say to me frequently, I don't study the Bible because it simply is no longer relevant to our culture. Why should I give myself to intensive study of such a thick book and of so many obscure things that cover history that took place so long ago about a Jewish nation of which I'm really not all that interested and all this business of, of religious detail that we find in the scriptures. Why should I give myself to that in this day and age? We can no longer be guided by a book that was written in a pre-scientific environment by primitive people who don't understand the sophisticated dimensions of modern life. You've heard that objection as often as I have, and maybe you've even been one of those who has uttered the objection. I think, for example, uh, that that particular problem is not new. People in the third century were quarreling about the relevancy of Scripture, and that's been a problem down through every generation. I guess as, as the period of time lengthens from antiquity, maybe the problem becomes more severe. But I think of one of America's most famous novelists who wrestled with this question and who wrote a whole book about it uh, in a certain sense. I'm thinking of Herman Melville perhaps the greatest novelist that this nation has ever produced. Melville, of course, is famous for his most important work, Moby Dick, the story of Ahab's quest for the great white whale. But we also know that in addition to Moby Dick, Melville wrote many other stories, some South Sea adventure stories, and another one that was made a motion picture in Hollywood by the name of Billy Budd. But there's a little book that uh, Melville wrote that interests me in the moment, and it's a book entitled Redburn. And it's the story of a young man who, as a teenager, makes his first voyage across the Atlantic to go back to his family's home in Liverpool in England. And it had been quite a few years since his parents had emigrated to this country from England, and his father made ready to send the lad on this ocean voyage that was perilous indeed, but it was his time of awakening to manhood and maturity. And so the father took young Redburn aside, and he gave him a prized family possession. He said, son, here is the map of the city of Liverpool that I have kept with me since the day we left there so many years ago. So that when you get to our hometown and you disembark from the ship, you can follow the map and the map will show you your way through this beaming city of Liverpool, this industrial center of England. And the, and the map will show you all the important streets and all the important landmarks. And so Redburn clutched that family possession to his bosom and he put it in his sea bag and he, he carefully uh, <clears throat> sheltered it from the storms of the journey across the Atlantic. And after a very perilous crossing, surviving the winds and the storms at sea, the young man finally disembarked on the distant shore and saw his first virgin reaction to the city of Liverpool. And he was excited 
as he came down the gangplank and he looked at this town. And he immediately went into his sea bag and he brought out his map and he began to follow the directions of the map. But he would go two streets following the map and then he would make the turn as the map indicated. And suddenly the landmark that was listed on the map was no longer in existence. Street names had been changed. Taverns had been sold. Buildings had been torn down and new ones put in their place. And so the new city of Liverpool did not correspond to the map that his father gave him. And he came to this very sad conclusion that his father's guide map would no longer service him and be useful to him in the city of his day. Now, what was Melville's point? Melville was using the artistic device of symbolism in that book to say something about the Bible. And he was saying it with tears. But he had been born and raised in a home where the Bible was treasured and where biblical values were inculcated into the children. But as he became a man, he grew into a sense of frustration saying, this guidance won't work in our time. I think he was wrong. I don't think that Melville, as brilliant as he was, was ever really able to understand how to interpret the scriptures in an adult way, to be able to apply the truths that were written centuries before he lived to his generation. And that's one of the goals for this course, is to be able to see how the scriptures are still very relevant to our lives in the 20th century. And to give us the key tools to translate and transpose biblical principles and biblical content to the present day generation. But there's another objection that perhaps is even raised more often than the charge of irrelevancy, and that is that the Bible is too difficult. Maybe you felt that. One of the little polls that I do with the student groups that come through the Ligonier Valley Study Center is that I'll get a group of Christians there and that are studying a particular theme, and I'll say, how many of you people have been a Christian for at least a year, and the vast majority of them have been. And I say, okay, how many of you in that first year since you've become a Christian have read the entire Bible? And let me assure you, perhaps for your own comfort, <laughs> that a very, very, very small percentage of people who have been a Christian for a year or more have actually read the Bible in its entirety. So after we get that settled and everybody realizes that the majority haven't, then I say, okay, let's, let's go back to the beginning. How many of you have read the book of Genesis and almost everybody's hand goes up? And I said, okay, keep up your hand if you've read the book of Exodus and maybe one hand will go down. People are basically familiar with the general themes of Genesis and Exodus. They, they uh, read the narrative history of creation and of the patriarchs and the exciting adventure of Moses and the Exodus and so on. I said, okay, how many of you completed Leviticus? And now hands start coming down. And how many of you completed uh, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy? 
And as soon as we get into that difficult, complex, pedantic information that we get in the book of Leviticus with all of the ceremonial and dietary laws and in the book of Numbers and into the legal sanctions of Deuteronomy, people say that's when their patience breaks down. Or even if they persevere through that, they have difficulty following the chronicles and the kings and so on. And they say, R.C., the book in many ways is just too hard for us. It's too foreign to us, too difficult to read. When I hear that, my thoughts immediately go back to the 16th century Protestant Reformation to one of the most important principles of Protestantism. And if I can continue in this mode of alliteration by speaking about important Protestant principles, let me add to this while I'm popping my peas on the important Protestant principles, the principle of perspicuity. Now there is a technical world word. What does perspicuity mean when it's used to describe the Bible? This was a, a, uh, an idea developed by the Protestant reformers and very, very uh, warm to the heart of Martin Luther. Perspicuity refers to what we call the clarity of Scripture. Now, you might jump up and down at this point and say, well, that's exactly where I have my problem. Scripture is not clear to me. It seems so entangled. And, 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 and I'm reading, one time I'm reading from James, another time from Paul, and at times they seem to contradict each other. Not, I don't know how to put them both together. How can somebody talk about the clarity of Scripture when you read the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel or the book of Ezekiel with all that cryptic symbolism that's in there that's so difficult for us to follow? It seems like our guidebooks don't really give us a clue on how to understand these things. Well, when Luther and the Protestant reformers set forth the principle of perspicuity of the scriptures, they were saying that the Bible is basically clear or essentially clear. And what they meant by essentially clear was clear with respect to the essentials. Clear with respect to the essentials. That is to say, a child who has an ability to read at perhaps a fifth grade level can make his way through the Bible. There are going to be lots of words he doesn't understand. There are going to be lots of concepts that are going to be beyond him theologically. There are going to be lots of, of, of symbols that he will miss altogether. But the basic message will get through. That basic message that Luther was speaking of is the basic message of redemption, the message of salvation, the message that says to us that we as human beings are created by a holy God. And that after God has created us, in many ways, we have violated the trust of that creation. We have, in a word, sinned against God. And we can understand the message that God takes that very, very seriously. And that that sin has not only disrupted our relationship to God, but also our relationship with other people, and not only with other people, but even with ourselves. And we can also get the message 
that God is concerned about that, that God wants to redeem that disruption, that break, that pitiable fall of mankind. And that throughout history, he is reaching out to his fallen world and that the acme of his work of redemption is found in sending his son into the world as our savior. Now, my six-year-old, my children, when they were six-year-old, understood that Jesus saved them from their sins. They didn't understand complex theories of the atonement. They didn't compli- understand the complicated debates in theology, but they understood that they had been bad and God was mad. And now he was glad because Christ was putting them back together. Very simple stuff. Very simple. It was a childlike understanding, but that's the essence. And that message in its most rudimentary form, its simplest mode is the most important message that the world needs to hear and when the reformer said the bible is clear that's what they're talking about it's clear on the essentials luther himself said not every part of the scripture is equally clear there are some parts of scripture that are so obscure that even phds in new testament studies or in old testament studies scratch their head and toss a coin trying to figure out exactly the precise nuance of meaning of that particular text and the most erudite the most brilliant the most accomplished and skilled theologians wrestle for decades over thorny questions of theology in the bible we know that And we're not suggesting that the Bible is so clear that anybody can understand all of its ramifications simply. No. But the essential message is there. God is not an elitist. I remember I was speaking on one occasion, uh, uh, giving a lecture. It wasn't a sermon even. It was a lecture to a group of people who had asked me to come and and explain to them the relationship of the old covenant to the new covenant. And I was going through all the stipulations and formats of the Old Testament covenantal structure and how in in the person of Christ in the New Testament, an atonement was made to satisfy the demands of Old Testament law. As I was explaining that, a gentleman shouted out spontaneously from the back of the room, that's primitive and obscene well you can imagine my chagrin here i am trying to lecture (laughs) to an audience i wasn't again it wasn't even a sermon it wasn't evangelistic pitch or anything like that and as i get to the place of the atonement a man gets so angry that he interrupts my lecture by screaming out that's primitive and obscene I didn't know what to do, so just to take time, I, I asked him, I said, would you repeat that, please, just so I could collect my thoughts? And he said, no, that's all right. I said, no, please, say it again. And he said, I said, that's primitive and obscene. And I said, you're right. And I particularly enjoy the two adjectives you've used to describe it. Primitive and obscene. Certainly, there's nothing in human history more obscene than the cross of Christ. For in that moment, all of the filthy ugliness of sin was compacted by imputation 
under the back of Jesus of Nazareth. When Christ hung on the cross, in and of himself, he was the Holy One of Israel, beautiful. But by imputation, once the sin of the world was laid on him, he was the incarnation at that moment of obscenity. But more important for our consideration today is the other adjective the man used, primitive. I said, that's right. You do have very, very high levels of literary prose and poetry to be found in the scripture. But on the other hand, the basic message is exactly what you're calling it. It's primitive. Because God cares enough about his fallen people that at times he lisps. He condescends to speak to us in our lowest state so that the simplest child, the most primitive savage, can understand the gift of eternal life. You know, in the academic world, we understand something, that to simplify difficult matters without distorting them is the true mark of an excellent teacher. Any professional academic person, any scholar ought to be able to speak to other scholars using scholarly terminology and scholarly jargon. But the real test of whether or not one scholar understands what he's talking about is can he state it in terms that a six-year-old child can understand. Because if I really understand something, I ought to be able to communicate it. And if I can't communicate it, that may be an indication that I really don't understand it in the first place. So I am going to, what I'm saying is, uh, in, in a sense, twofold. I'm saying, yes, I hear what, what you're feeling when you say the Bible is too difficult. There are parts of it that are excruciatingly difficult. But at the other hand, I want to remind you that there is enough there that you can grasp even without a formal education in biblical studies that is of eternal significance for you. But I don't want to just leave it there. I want to say, and this is again a goal of this course, that we can all, no matter who we are and no matter how much education we have and how far we've progressed academically, each one of us can improve our skill in handling that book. And my goal is that particularly for those who are frightened by the weightiness of Scripture, who are a little bit scared of, of some of its strange and foreign ideas, will be able to get comfortable with it. And that we can learn some rules and some principles together that will give confidence and fun and excitement to those who endeavor to study the Word of God. Now, why should we do it? Two reasons, which I'll try to state quickly. The first reason why we should study the Bible, not just read it or casually examine it devotionally, but why discipline study should be our goal is this. Because, dear friends, it's our duty. I know that 
Speaking of obscenities, that the four-letter word that's become perhaps the, <laughs> the most <laughs> despised obscenity, obscenity in our culture today is that four-letter word, D-U-T-Y, duty. We can't avoid it. God does, in fact, require of each of his people, not just of the priests and the prophets, of the scholars and the theologians, but he requires of each one of us that we be diligent in the study of his word. Let me go back to one of the most important texts in the Old Testament, one that I'm sure you've heard, at least in passing, one that is very important to the Jewish community because it was at the heart of Jewish worship in the Old Testament. It comes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, which includes the Shema. The hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That's the great commandment, isn't it? But the Bible goes on. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them upon the posts of your house and on thy gates. And he goes on to say that you should, you should be so absorbed in a study of the things of God that you talk about these things when you sit down, when you stand up, when you go to bed, when you're at the table. Tie them on your forehead, tie them on your wrist, put them on your doorposts. In a word, God is very much concerned that we are diligent in the study of his word. But it's not enough to speak of duty. With that duty comes a sacred privilege. Our Lord told us that he came that we might have life. And we were also told that the word of God is life. So God requires this study from us, not just because he's a stern taskmaster like Pharaoh that won't give us any straw for our bricks, but he requires it. So that we can live, so we can experience the fullness of life that God has ordained and designed for each one of us. But let us move then to a consideration of the principles that are important to become masters of the word of God. Have you ever had anybody after you've... Uh recited a passage from scripture or given your views on what you thought the meaning of a particular passage of scripture was? Have you ever had anybody after that situation to sort of look at you and dismiss all of your statements by one simple statement? They look at you and they say, well, that's your interpretation. I've certainly had that done to me on many occasions and I've often asked myself, what do people mean when they say that? That's your interpretation. We're going to look at that today and some of the ramifications of it after we open with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you not only have spoken to us 
set and set down your word for us in writing, but that that word is available to us, that in the privacy of our own homes, we can read for ourselves the truth that you have given to your church. We thank you for this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, that's just your interpretation. That's the dismissal I've heard many times, and I suspect you have too from people. And I, as I asked a moment ago, what do people have in mind when they say, that's your interpretation? I've thought about it, and I thought, well, maybe they're just pointing out the obvious. I'm the one who just gave the interpretation of the scripture. But surely they wouldn't be wasting everybody's time by just pointing out something that everybody knew already, that it was my interpretation. There must be more to it than that. And maybe what it is, is, is a veiled uh, rebuttal by getting to the bottom line as quickly as possible to refute what I've just said by a simple little equation, the simplest of all kinds of syllogism, the idea that's unspoken would be this. Everything that R.C. Sproul interprets is wrong. Since R.C. Sproul interpreted this passage, the only conclusion we can come to is what? It is wrong. But I don't think people are being that unkind or that nasty when they say that's your interpretation. And just by, by putting it at your doorstep, therefore, saying that it's wrong, because obviously anything that you touch would turn to error. I doubt that. But I'll tell you what terrifies me. I'm afraid that so often what people mean when they dismiss us lightly by that's your interpretation is, well, that's your interpretation. You read it one way. I look at it another way. And the third party over here reads it still a third way. And these three may be mutually exclusive. They may contradict each other. But that's all right. Because the Bible is a matter of individual subjective interpretation. Whatever it means to you is fine. Like I say, if that's what people have in mind, it terrifies me for this reason. Because then it becomes a slogan for what we call subjectivism, where the meaning of the word of God becomes tied to who's ever interpreting. That's what Luther was so afraid of, that the Bible might become a wax nose that would be shaped and formed and molded according to the pride and the prejudice of whoever was studying it and whoever was reading it. If we let that happen, dear friends, then the Bible's authority collapses. Its truth has been relativized and the word of God is slain. But you say, wait a minute, R.C., you mentioned in the first lecture that a very important principle coming out of the Protestant Reformation was the principle of the perspicuity, that is, the clarity of the Bible. Wasn't there even a more basic principle in the Reformation, namely the principle and the right of private interpretation of the Bible? Yes, indeed. The principle of private interpretation was one of the most precious legacies that we have from the Protestant Reformation. It's a principle, incidentally, that we tend to take for granted. If you are sitting in your home, reading the Bible, 
in your own language, you may assume that that's a freedom and a privilege that is easily achieved. But the blood of the martyrs has flown through the streets of Europe to make that possible. Because in the 16th century, one of the most important things that Martin Luther did when the Reformation was started was to translate the Bible into the vernacular, into the German language, which was the first time it had been accomplished. And that created a hue and cry and protest throughout the Roman Catholic Church that brought all of the power of the church to bear to stop the printing presses from releasing copies of the Bible in native languages. And some Protestants look at that today and they say, how evil must Rome have been to have sought to suppress the publication of the Bible in native languages? But ladies and gentlemen, it's not all that simple. You go back and you read the history and you see that, that men and women were tortured. They were torn apart on the rack. They were burned at the stake for daring to translate the Bible into English or into German or into some other language. And you say, how ghastly must the Roman church have been? Not so. Not so. Let's take a little exercise in best case analysis. Why do you suppose the Roman church took such a strong stand against translating the Bible into the languages so that the people could read it on their own? Well, if we were just looking at this from a prejudicial viewpoint, we would say, well, maybe that was the great cover-up scandal of all time, that they didn't want the people to know how far the church had departed from the biblical truth. I don't think that was the main reason at all. As the princes of the Roman Catholic Church said, if we put the Bible in the hands of unskilled laymen, without the magisterium of the church, without the teaching office of the church to govern and guide and protect people from, from erroneous understandings of the scripture, we're going to open a floodgate of iniquity. And they even predicted that uh, that would cause a multitude of different Christian denominations, each one claiming the Bible as the truth. In 1960, there were listed in the United States of America in the Directory of Religion 2,000 different Protestant denominations. I don't know how many there are now. But in 1960, 2,000 of them. There was the Church of the Ladder up to Heaven number one and the Church of the Ladder up to Heaven number two, which split from the Church of the Ladder up to Heaven number one over an issue and dispute of biblical interpretation. And all of these different denominations claim the Scripture as their source of truth. That's what Rome was afraid of. Rome was afraid that the body of Christ would be fragmented and fractured and that heresy would run wild if you gave people the right of private interpretation and of translating the Bible into their own native language. They were pretty accurate in their forecasting and they said, we will use corporal punishment, physical force, Torture chambers, which were commonplace in that day, if necessary, will harm every joint of the human body if we can preserve people's souls from eternal torment and hell. If you want to understand the Inquisition, you have to understand that it took place at a time when people actually believed in hell. And, it'll, and that souls could go there, which is not where many 
of the churches are today. But I'm not here to praise Rome. I stand with Luther. I agree in the principle of private interpretation and of translating the Bible into the vernacular. But I want to stress that Rome was not just being obstreperous when she cautioned against the dangers of private interpretation. It could indeed loose a floodgate of iniquity, and in many cases it did unleash a floodgate of iniquity, and Luther himself agonized over this point. He said, I know what people who are unskilled and untrained and irresponsible can do with the Bible if they rip it out of its context, if they distort the meaning of Scripture. But again, for the sake of that simple, clear message that the whole world could hear the gospel of Christ that is so desperately needed, he said, if this opens up a floodgate of iniquity, so let it be. So vital is the truth of the gospel for the nations. But it's a price that we've had to pay. And when you get everybody disagreeing with everybody else and you want to keep peace, one way to do it is to embrace subjectivism and relativism and say, well, it's all relative anyway. It doesn't really matter. You interpret your way, you interpret it your way. And if they clash, if they conflict, that's okay. Peace peace. That's Neville Chamberlain's approach to biblical truth. Peace may be accomplished for a season that way. But truth is slain in the streets. The first principle of biblical interpretation is this. And this principle may scandalize you it may infuriate you. As soon as you hear it come from my lips, I just beg for a minute's indulgence, ask you to hear me out and, and be careful now so that we understand what we're saying and that you'll follow the distinctions because I'm going to make a, a very fine distinction here in a moment. Here's the principle. There is only one correct meaning of any biblical text. Let me say it again. Principle number one. There is only one correct meaning of any biblical text. He's a monomaniac. I can hear them say it. You know, he's got this one-wayism, this narrow, rigid, brittle mentality. No, what I'm saying is there's only one correct meaning, but there may be a multitude of applications, and the significance of a passage may be uh, virtually uh, beyond bounds. Let me see if I can tell a story that will illustrate what I'm talking about. I know of a professor, I believe he's in Dallas Seminary, who, uh, who works with uh, these uh, young men and who are involved in Christian education and pastoral training. And in the first day of his course, he gives them an assignment. He said, tomorrow I want you to go and I want you to take this one verse of scripture and he assigns the one verse, one sentence of scripture. He said, I want you to write down on a piece of paper 50 things that you learn 
from this one verse of scripture. And there is this groan that exudes throughout the classroom. And the students go back and they're muttering under their breath and they get out their lists and then they try to find out one or two or three things that they learned from this verse. Maybe they can quickly rush down to six or seven and then they're stymied and they go and they knock on their neighbor's door and they say, what have you discovered in this verse that I haven't found? And they start comparing notes and pretty soon the whole dormitory's up there trying to come up with 50 things that they learn from scripture and they're going on at three and four in the morning finding the next morning they come into class they're bleary-eyed and they turn in their assignments where they turn in 50 things that they learn from one sentence of holy scripture and the professor said good job that's terrific he said mom my assignment for tomorrow is find 50 more an invaluable lesson is conveyed that the bible is a treasury of truth we have little books that help us in writing and in literature and english we call them thesaurus rogets thesaurus for example and the word thesaurus means a treasury well the ultimate thesaurus is scripture and there is a treasury of meaning and application i mean a treasury of significance and application in every single verse each verse is pregnant with significance for our lives and the professor could have gone on every day till next Tuesday and the Tuesday after that assigning 50 more and 50 more and the most brilliant student would not have exhausted the possible significances and possible applications from each of those verses but dear friends there's only one correct meaning truth is not contradictory the word of God is consistent. It functions in harmony. And if I interpret a portion of scripture in a way that contradicts how you interpret that portion of scripture, we know something at the outset that's very important. And that is that one of us at least is wrong. If your interpretation contradicts mine, one of us at least is wrong we may both be wrong and a third party must might come down and say a pox on both of your houses and show us where we've both made a mistake and we both should change our minds we both can be wrong one of us might be wrong and one of us might be right but if they are contradictory they cannot both be right why what's the working principle the working principle here is the truth is not contradictory well it used to be if i would make a statement like that in a classroom people would just say well of course truth isn't contradictory that's certainly true we don't have to labor that point i can't do it anymore we're living in a culture that has gone so far to embrace relativism that there are people who actually believe the truth, real truth, can be contradictory. I think of, of a well-known theologian who made the statement earlier on in this century that not only can truth be contradictory, but he said real truth, ultimate truth, high and holy theological truth is often contradictory because it is so high, so lofty, so marvelous that it goes beyond our human capacity for logic and reason 
and that divine truth not only may be contradictory, it often is. In fact, he went so far in rhapsodizing and celebrating this feature of Christianity as to say that the contradiction is the very hallmark of truth. Now, if all that theologian wanted to do was to point out that there is much truth in Scripture that is too high and holy for our rational categories to comprehend. If all he was trying to say is that sometimes God's ways are so mysterious to us that we cannot put them in a box and dissect them and analyze them logically, or that we could not create out of the basis of our own human intellect the riches of divine truth, if that's all he meant to say, then who would demur? But he said more than that. You see, it's one thing to say that, that the truth of Christ goes beyond reason, which it certainly does, but it's another thing to say that it goes against it. Let's look at the idea that truth, that, excuse me, contradiction is the hallmark of truth. A contradiction is not just a, an irony or a twist in meaning or even a paradox, which is an apparent contradiction that under closer scrutiny yields its resolution. We're talking about real contradiction, you see, where both ends mutually exclude the other. There is a God, there is no God. Those two statements are contradictory. They cannot both be true. You know, I've had, a, uh, I've had a woman say to me on one occasion, oh, yes, if you believe in God and you find it meaningful in your life to believe in God, then for you, God is true. I don't believe in God and God's not meaningful to me. So for me, there is no God. I said, wait a minute. We're not talking about the same thing. I said, the God that I'm talking about, that I'm affirming is a God who exists, whether you believe in him or not, or whether I believe in him or not. And if there is no such God, all my praying, all my singing, all my preaching is not going to conjure him up. And if there is such a God, your disbelief cannot destroy him. We're talking about objective truth, not subjective preferences, not what you want to be true or what works for you or what makes you feel good. But you see, that's the kind of culture we're living in today that tells us that whatever feels good for me is true or what works for me is true without a regard to reality, whether or not there really is someone out there apart from me. All right, now let's go back. The contradiction is the hallmark of truth. Let's apply it to the opening chapters of the Bible. God says to his creation, Adam and Eve, he said, if you eat of this tree, you will die. Now let's translate that just for a second into logic. If you eat, you will die. If A, then B will inevitably follow. A few minutes later, Satan comes, and in his serpentine uh, seduction, he comes to the creatures, and he says to them, did God say you can't eat and all of that? And then Satan goes on to say, you will not die, but you will become as gods. God said, if you eat, you die. Satan says, if you eat, you will not die. That is a direct contradiction. Not just a mystery, not just a paradox, that's a contradiction. Now let's analyze it. If contradiction is the hallmark of truth, then Adam's thinking, he's a sharp thinker. He doesn't have to, to work through all the problems of the fall that muddle the head that we do. Adam's pristine, pure, he's very sharp, he's very bright, he understands reasoning very acutely. And so he says, hmm, God says, if A, then B. Satan says, if A, then non B. That's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. Adam recognizes the contradiction. 
But then he's working on the theologian's principle that the contradiction is the hallmark of the truth. What would his irresistible conclusion be? If contradiction is the hallmark of the truth, then he's going to reason like this. This is a contradiction that Satan has uttered. The contradiction is the hallmark of the truth. That means what Satan is saying must be a hallmark of the truth. He must be representing the truth. If God is truth, Satan is representative. I can go ahead and eat. In that case, the failure to eat of the tree would have been a sin. And the fall would not have been a fall. It would have been a great leap forward in human history. You see, dear friends, without a clear-cut understanding of a contradiction, there is no human way to discern the difference between Christ and Antichrist, between godliness and ungodliness, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between truth and falsehood. Biblically, the contradiction is not the hallmark of the truth. It is the hallmark of the lie. That's why even as uncomfortable as we become when we disagree, because we want peace, we want harmony, we want fellowship. When we're dealing with the word of God, we have to understand that when those disagreements come, if we really are understanding each other and that there really does exist a, a difference of opinion, somebody's wrong. And let's not take the cheap way out by short-circuiting the problem at the expense of the integrity of God. God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. His word is truth. It is not contradiction. It may not be relativized. There is only one accurate, correct meaning of Scripture. Many applications, many nuances of significance, but one correct meaning. Now, so it's important to understand that the principle of private interpretation is not a principle upon which is to be established subjectivism or relativism. That was not clearly understood even in the 16th century. After Luther sat down his principle of private interpretation, and remember the, the circumstances of that where he got in trouble with the Roman Catholic Church over the issue of justification by faith alone, and he got in debates, and, and they said, well, Martin, how can you disagree with, 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 what the, with what the church council back here said? And he said, well, church councils can make mistakes. I'm, I'm re trying to read what Paul says here, and it seems to me that Paul is saying justification by faith alone. And, and, and the princes of the church said, yes, Luther, it seems to you that Paul is teaching justification by faith alone. But the church has declared here that that's not what he was teaching. And, Paul's, and, and Luther said, well, maybe the church made a mistake. The church made a mistake. A church council make a mistake? How can a church council make a mistake? Luther said, well, they're human beings just like us. They're not infallible. Well, look here, the Pope has... And Luther said, well, maybe the Pope can err too. And they say, Luther, how arrogant that you would set yourself up against church and council. And you remember what Luther said when he was called upon to recant? He said, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I can't recant because my mind, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. He said, in a final analysis, you know, I have to go by what I understand the Bible to say. At that moment, you see, the right of private interpretation was born in the church. Luther challenged the church's exclusive right to interpret the scripture infallibly. And the church responded to that in the Counter-Reformation and at the Council of Trent, it, says, it said, 
No man has any right to distort the scriptures. Amen. We agree with the Roman Catholic Church 100%. Luther said we have the right to interpret it differently from how the church has, but we never have the right to distort it. That is to say the right of private interpretation carries with it the responsibility of correct interpretation. The right of private interpretation carries with it the responsibility of correct interpretation. Sure, I can study the Bible on my own, and I can interpret it on my own, and it is theoretically possible that I can understand it in a way that everybody else in the church has missed for 2,000 years, but that's very unlikely. That's very unlikely. That's why it's wise to consult the interpretation of the church. To, to consult the best commentaries, to consult what other minds have garnered, because it's very possible that I can learn from others. Luther did that, but it was as, as he studied the great giants of the past, Augustine and others. Augustine was telling him what he was rereading again in the, in the 16th century that somehow got lost in between. So it wasn't that Luther saw on his own out of the blue invented justification by faith alone. But we should be humble enough as we come to the text of Scripture to seek the mind of the church, to seek the mind of the scholars, to seek the mind of the commentaries, lest we become guilty of a kind of private interpretation that turns the Bible into the waxed nose. The difference is this. We have two technical terms in biblical studies that we need to learn. One is exegesis. The other is eisegesis. They both come from Greek words. Ex. We see it in the exit sign. We see it in a lot of words. Ex means out of or from. The science of exegesis is coming to the text and drawing out of the text, ex, out of the text, what is actually in the text. Isogesis, E-I-S, comes from the Greek word eis, which means into. Isogesis is when I come to the text and read into the text something that isn't there at all. That's what distorts scripture. Reading into the text, something that isn't there. Or even drawing out of the text, something that is not legitimately drawn from the text. But we have to be careful to learn how to read what's there and how to handle what's there. And as I say, as this course goes along, we're going to study concrete practical rules that will help us guard ourselves from eisegesis and make us more skilled at exegesis that we can honor the integrity of the Word of God. As we continue our series now on the theme of knowing...